is I want to spend today um, going back to basics because one of the things that I found in, in my life, in my practice, is I know that everything I want is outside my comfort zone, but it's hard to sometimes go out my, outside my comfort zone. And a big thing is asking questions that I think that if I ask it, then they will think that I don't know what I'm doing, don't know what I'm talking about. And yet, when people give you basic answers of stuff, sometimes we've always wondered what the hell that was. And you're like, God, I'm glad I finally heard that. Like bad faith opening a policy, like a bunch of different things. And so I'm going to take a step back today and I'm going to talk about trials. And I'm going to talk about general strategy on trials and kind of the things that are highlights from the start to a finish, from a month before trial to the end. Some of y'all know this, but it will help you to hear it again. But a lot of y'all probably don't. Maybe maybe it's one of those things where you've always wanted to know, but you were afraid to ask because you're like, I don't want people to think I don't know what I'm talking about. Through any of this, we can stop and ask questions. We can go through. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about a PI trial. And I'm going to use the remote trial that we did that's on the Alder Talk YouTube. And in, let's take that case as an example. And the facts were very simple. It was a rear end accident. There was a plaintiff, one person in the car. They got hit. They've admitted liability. Let's say that. There were four witnesses, plaintiff, a defendant, a plaintiff's accident recon, and a defense um, medical doctor. We did voir dire, we did opening and closing, okay? And so I'm, if you guys, after we talk, want to go back, it's on the YouTube and you can look at it and see how we put some of these ideas and strategies in. I want to talk about trials in general, okay? Um, about a month, <clears throat> about a month before a trial, it is really important to start thinking about the trial. And I'm putting aside for a minute the Sanchez case, which has changed a lot of, of the way we've done trials. Like I said, when I first started 20 years ago, I said, give me all your dregs. I will try anything that moves. And I've been in a trial brought in as late as the night before the trial to start the next morning, right? And I could do that, and I did that. 30 times a year where I'd try 12 of them and I'd settle 20 of them because the hearsay rules were not being enforced for experts. So my expert could come in and basically I could lead them to do anything. Sanchez has changed that. That's a whole nother discussion. But, but generally Sanchez says that the hearsay rule applies to experts. And it used to be that your expert, if they relied on reliable hearsay, and a medical record is a reliable hearsay thing, a police report finding of skids is a reliable hearsay, then they could talk about it. So you could bring in an expert, whether they had been deposed or not, as long as they were designated, the defense too, you could bring in an accident recon, and they could talk about all the shit that they reviewed. Sanchez then changed the landscape and said, 
that reliable hearsay has to be authenticated and get over the hearsay rule before any expert can talk about it. And that's a big change now for trials. And I want to talk about that because it's a huge difference maker in the length of your trials and the amount of potential witnesses that you may have to call. And what I mean for that, your accident recon used to be able to look at the police report and see that there's 12 feet of skids and would talk to the jury, well, there's 12 feet of skids and it was a centrifugal skid mark. That means the car was driving 40 miles an hour. Well, now they can't use that 12-foot skid and tell a jury about it unless that police officer has either been deposed and describes the how they did it and that subject to cross-examination, and you have to then authenticate that for your expert to talk about it. When you have an expert doctor they can't say an MRI finding was four millimeter bulge at T unless you have gone and gotten that radiologist deposition who authenticates the MRI and the findings. The defense expert has to do the same thing. The defense doctor can no longer show up and go, well, at the ER, there's a record that the plaintiff complained about X, Y, and Z, but didn't complain about the back. Well, now they can't say that unless the defense lawyer has authenticated that statement, found out who wrote it, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So do you all see that if we have to call all those people at trial to authenticate all that evidence, that now, instead of four witnesses, you have 15 witnesses. And the judges are going nuts because a one-week trial becomes a three-week trial, and it's boring as hell. Is this your – did you make the study? Tell us, was it done in the customary and reasonable way? of your? And you go through this shit all the time. And so judges are like, guys, step away, Sanchez. You guys agree that the records are subpoenaed and they're authentic. You guys agree. And so I say this because we now need to think of Sanchez well before our trial dates. Because once you get within about a month of trial, if you ask the defense lawyer for something, you are much less likely to get it the closer you get to trial. So if you say two months before trial or three months before trial, hey, dude, let's skip away or, hey, let's skip Sanchez away and let's not take these depots. They're much more likely to agree than if you do it a week before trial and they think that tactically they get an advantage by not agreeing. So with time to take those depots, you need to think about Sanchez and raise it with defense counsel. What does it also do? It puts you in that category. They realize you know what Sanchez is. They realize that you are thinking about the trial. Okay? 
but you will be stuck. If you ignore Sanchez, you go to trial and you're like, doctor, tell us what the MRI findings, objection, hearsay, sustained. And then you're like, uh, what? And there's some ways that you can try to get around it, but it's much better to think about it. Now I say all that background because that applies to everything that you plan on doing at trial. So if you are thinking about your trial and you wanna use a PowerPoint, okay? In opening statements, most judges don't let you show exhibits, show a PowerPoint without an agreement from both sides. Okay. So what I do at least a month before trial is I call or email the defense lawyer and I say, Hey, you thinking about using a PowerPoint? I'm cool with it. I'm thinking about it. Um, why don't, you know, we, I'm happy to, I'm happy to show you whatever I got, you know, but let's do it a month or so before trial. They're like very likely. Yeah, no problem. You try to ask them at the final status conference, they are much less likely to say, yeah, I'll agree on using a PowerPoint, okay? So you gotta raise stuff like that. Hey, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna need my um, people out of order. Hey, I'm gonna need something about a motion in limine. I'm gonna need PowerPoint. I wanna use this in uh, my opening statement. Try to think about it and raise it as early as you can before the trial date because you are much, much more likely for them to agree to it because they're probably not even thinking about it, right? Especially like, hey, I want to use some photos of the plaintiff in my opening statement. You had a problem with that? I'll send over you a bunch of them. You say that 45 days before, they're like, ah, whatever, no problem. You say it two days before trial, they're like, ah, no, I don't think so. And you're stuck, Okay. So I say that because while you're doing that, you need to, I believe, at least a couple of weeks before trial, now start thinking about your witness order. Scheduling witnesses is the most difficult part of a trial, period, paragraph. And I have an article in this uh, guidebook about how to do it. So now, about a month before trial, you're thinking about... Do I have everything from Sanchez? Should I raise, if I'm gonna do a PowerPoint, I wanna raise it. If I've got any specific photos or evidence that I wanna use early in my case, in my opening statements, sometimes people even show some stuff in Guadir, I wanna raise it then. Now about two weeks before trial, I need to reach out to all of my experts and say, Assuming we go to trial on this date and it takes a day or two for voir dire, what is your availability for the next week and a half? Okay. And you do that with all your experts. And I will tell you that it is a pain in the ass to schedule your witnesses, but you get all their availability. And as I show in my article, what I do is I go on a whiteboard and I write up, let's say we start on a Monday with Vadir, okay? And the judge, so I will put Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, a.m., p.m., 
And then you got to map out your strategy because you got to fit in your experts, not only at a time when they're available, but with a thought towards foundation, because you can't put on damage people until the jury has enough information about liability that they're willing to listen to your damage people. Okay. In other words, if you have an issue about who's at fault or causation or something like that, if you lead with your doctor to talk about surgery, the jury's not ready to hear that, right? They're much less likely to listen because they're still thinking about, should, do I even need to listen to this evidence? So I fill in my liability experts when I can, as soon as I can, right? I then have my damage witnesses after that. And you will see then on your board, you'll have Monday, Vladimir, AM, PM, Tuesday, maybe Vladimir opening, Tuesday afternoon opening, first witness. And usually it's always for a PI case, the defendant. Defendant, Tuesday afternoon, maybe Wednesday morning. Then, it's up to your expert availability. If you have an accident recon that you're going to call, now you know, well, if I can put them in on Wednesday morning, that's when I tell that expert I'm going to need them. Right? If you don't have your accident recon available till Thursday, you got to fill in the rest of Wednesday. Right? And you need to know this because depending on your judge, they're going to hold your feet. If it's a federal judge, give up, right? So then you fill out your expert times so that you have a framework and then you fill in the rest. Many times the plaintiff, when they're called, is not really strategically when you want them to be called, but as the fill-in for when you don't have any other witness because your experts tend to be really difficult to schedule. Does that make sense? And it is really important, right? Because some judges will really hold your ass to the fire, right? In federal court, if you don't have a witness after whip, they, they tell you, you rest. It's really terrible. Okay. So now that you have your witnesses generally in order, remember, you have to know before you start this process, and it's hard, if you have an independent calendar, Judge, you know ahead of time what their dark days are. Most, a lot of courts don't have jury trials on Fridays. It's a lot more difficult if you go through the hub and you don't know who your courtroom is going to be until the, the afternoon before, right? So you see how important it is for you or your staff to get from their experts all of their available times for the week and a half, right? And every once in a while, you run into a doctor that says, I need my 10 grand up front two weeks before, and I need you to give me the date that I'm available. And if it changes, I keep that 10 grand and you give me another 10 grand. My answer to that is never hire that expert again because it is impossible to say exactly when a trial starts 
until a court says, show up tomorrow to pick a jury. It is impossible. It is very difficult. And so if you have experts that are like that, it's tough. So you got to think about it. You have a treating doctor who's not used to this. They're going to want a date certain. So that treater, you're going to want to move back in your witnesses a little bit to accommodate for the change in when your trial may start. And you may have said, well, originally you were going to talk about it on day three, but because we started late, you're on day one. You got to think about all that. That's why I say witness scheduling is really difficult. So what I would suggest is you, you start a trial notebook. What I do is a three ring binder with a ton of loose leaf paper. And one of the first sheets is witness information, cell number, email of the doctor, of their assistant, of the expert, their assistant, the treating, ask for as much information as you can get to think about what if I needed to text this doctor and say, don't come this morning, come this afternoon. You're going to need that information. Believe me. How many times have I been stuck where I'm in court? I can't leave. I could text, but now I got to text my assistant so that they can call the assistant. You need to be able to get a hold of that expert directly. Okay. First. Next, in your trial notebook, then once you have kind of your order of witnesses, then I would suggest that you organize your trial notebook by witness. And I have a tab for every potential witness, the plaintiff, the defendant, each expert, the police officer, whoever's going to testify. In there, I have loose leaf paper. I have a condensed copy of my, the deposition if they've been deposed. I have a summary of that deposition with notes that I may have made. I have any exhibits that I'm going to use for that witness. And I have it accessible because the five second rule applies in your cases. And it is something I have used throughout my trial. And that is, if you don't have accessible the depot snippet, the exhibit, the medical record in five seconds or less, many times you're better off skipping it and moving on than trying to find it. Example, how many times have you been in court as a juror or as a lawyer? You have done it or the other side. Your Honor, I'd like to read from the defendant's deposition. Do you have a copy of that depot? Uh, and they stew. Jurors hate it. You hate it. Think about how uncomfortable you are. What do jurors read from that? Not only are they bored, they look at that negatively. Conversely, if you always have something available, or if you have an extra copy when the defense lawyer is stepping all over themselves, you're like, here you go, I got an extra copy for you. Jurors look favorably at that. Oh, this is a good lawyer. They're organized. This must be a good case. They only take good cases, et cetera, et cetera. 
But that speed is makes you more persuasive. And so if you're gonna use an exhibit for seven witnesses, I would recommend that you copy it seven times and you put it in each tab because what you want is when you open that section, I got my notes or my cross or whatever I'm going to do. I got the depot if I need it. I got the snippets of the depot that I'm going to use to cross them. I got the exhibits I'm going to use. Right? So, yes, do some people have, you know, call up exhibit 3-529 and then it takes a long time to get it. You could do that. But I would suggest that you have it handy in your little snippet, okay? So I want to stop before we now start the voir dire process. I want to see if you guys got questions. But now what you've done is you've prepared for trial. You've thought about the information you're going to need to help you organize. You've put it into a trial notebook. The reason I say you have loose leaf paper is throughout the case, Shit happens. And I have a big old, look at all these pens I got. Why do I have these? It's because when there's something that I need to know, I write it on one sheet of paper. I open the three ring binder and then I put it into the section of the witness and I need to talk about that. In opening statement, when the defendant lawyer is talking about BS crap, they're like, you're gonna see that. I'm like, and I move it to the defendant. I'm like, I'm going to ask his ass about that. I have one trials where I talk to jurors and they go, whenever you picked up this pen, we paid attention. Right? But what does it do? Remember, heartbeat control is the most important thing about trial. You're going to have a billion things coming at you. You need to have a system where you can make a note and then go put it in the section when you need it two days later because you will not remember. You will not remember. You just won't. So that three, that loose leaf paper is a cheap paper. It's easily movable and it's something that I use. Okay, so let's stop and talk about questions or any comments or anything that I've left out that, that somebody notices before we get to voir dire. Um, Mike, you mentioned that you use the plaintiff's testimony as a filler sometimes. Um, does that throw the jury off or, or um, affect your story in any way? <clears throat> well, you want to call them when you, but sometimes what I'm saying as a filler is that you just got to be a little flexible on the time. My thoughts are is I never want the jury to, to hear about the plaintiff for the first time from the plaintiff, right? I want them to hear something about the plaintiff, not only their, their background, but also their medical history before the plaintiff comes on, right? I don't want my plaintiff to have to tell the jury about the medical care that they've been through. Usually you want your plaintiff to come up. The jury already gets, they already kind of know them. They already know who they are. They know that they're a mother, that they're a, a veteran. They know whatever it is. They know generally what's happened to them. And then I have found that jurors give more money to positive plaintiffs about how they've overcome their problems rather than negative. 
And so if my plaintiff's job is to tell the jury all of the horror stories of their pain and whatever, it's less effective than if that has come from a relative, a friend, a doctor, and then the plaintiff is there to talk about how they've had to overcome that. Okay. So I never, I, I don't usually call the plaintiff as my first couple of witnesses because I want other people to talk about the plaintiff. Okay. Next. Okay. <clears throat> Voir dire. So the court will tell you whatever trial court you go to. Sometimes the day before of Wadir, and if it's in San Bernardino or Riverside and they give you a little heads up, or at least San Bernardino, they'll tell you a week before. Usually they do a six pack. And what that means is, is that the veneer is usually about 35 jurors, depending on the length of your trial, which you have estimated. Sometimes they pre-screen jurors for hardship. So if you have a jury trial that's going to last five days or less, many times they don't pre-screen. But if it's going to take three weeks before they send the 35 people up, they will quiz these people to see if they can even wait for three weeks so that you don't have to go through a bunch of panels where the first question is, who can't stay for three weeks? And half the jury panel says, I can't. And then they leave and you got to call more people. Okay. So if you have a pre-screened Usually what happens is the judge talks to the jury and says, welcome, the veneer, welcome. This is a general type of case, et cetera, et cetera. And most of the time they then do hardship and judges vary from, but, and they vary how they do it, but then they ask, this is going to be an X long trial. Does anybody have any medical procedures or they got kids or they got a school? A lot of times college kids get kicked off. And depending on your judge, that can be a long process, right? Depending on the length of your trial, you may have a half a day or more before you even start picking the jury, talking to jurors privately about their hardships. If you have particularly difficult issues, drugs, Sex, all, a lot of times you get people that don't want to talk about it and then they have to go privately with the judge. And the reason I'm telling you this is remember, you've mapped out your witnesses, right? And so let's say that the hardship, you thought Wadir was going to be Monday and Tuesday morning and you don't start Wadir to Tuesday because you did hardship all day. You got to be moving. You see what I'm talking about, about witness scheduling. It is a lot more difficult than you first appear. But they do hardship, let's say. Now in PI cases, I always request a mini opening. The law changed about six or seven years ago that encouraged many openings. And it used to be that of the trial documents that you filed with the court, there was a statement of the case. And the statement of the case was an extremely generic one or two paragraph statement agreed to by both sides as to what the case was about. It was boring as hell and it said nothing, right? It was usually on such and such a date at the intersection of so-and-so, there was an accident involving the plaintiff and the defendant. Plaintiff claims they were injured. Defendant denies the nature and extent of their injuries. That means, and people are like, I'm asleep by the time they finish that, right? And so they changed the rules 
to make it more interesting for jurors that both sides give about a three minute, two to three minute mini opening before the jury selection, the questioning, to give context and interest to the jurors. Okay? So most of the time you will have an opportunity after the judge does hardship and says, thank you for serving and how important jury service is and whatever little voir dire they want to do. A lot of times it's, it's worthless. It's can everybody be fair? Are any of y'all criminals Will you follow the law? I mean, has anybody ever had, you know what? I'm a liar. I'm a, I don't follow the law and I'm not fair. No one ever says that. Right. So it's kind of a, worthless thing. Then you get to Wadir, a mini opening, and you need to be careful. Don't over argue your case, because if you win your case in mini opening, the first question by the defense in Wadir is, who here is already learn, leaning towards the plaintiff? And if you just argued your whole damn case in mini opening, and you won, everybody who's already going to be uh, like your evidence going to raise their hand and the jury's they're going to get kicked off for cause. So your many opening is kind of a, you want to set the table, but if you got a lot of good stuff, you want to kind of hold back on that. All right. I'm going to go a little bit faster. Um, so you start jury selection. Generally jury selection is about listening. It's about not about talking. This is your opportunity to size the jurors up, but understand they're sizing you up, which is why in addition to the five second rule, I tell my, my clients, there's a five mile rule. And I say, whenever you're within five miles of the courthouse, you have to assume that every person that you interact with is a potential juror. And that means no flipping people off who grab the last parking spot, no cussing, no yapping on the phone and making everybody wait as you're going through the metal detector. Anybody ever done that shit? Anybody ever been pissed off by that? No coming, you know, go through and you pull out your, you know, your chain and your knife and your dip. Leave it at home. Right? No exuberant laughing or crazy ass crying. Okay? And the reason for that is because jurors are watching you. They're watching your clients. And I swear to God, I have had in a wide year. I remember it. San Fernando, Judge Randy Rhodes. Wide year. Anybody have anything you want to say? Anything they've heard or whatever? You know, kind of what do y'all think? I heard y'all, your plaintiffs talking in the cafeteria. They were talking about millions and millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. You know what they were talking about? This is a long time ago how Enron executives had stolen millions of dollars from their people. But you know what that juror heard? Plaintiff wants millions of dollars. And I'm saying, you just don't know. So shut your mouth, right? It is important because they're also watching you. That means shine your shoes, iron your skirt or your jacket. That binder that you have is a three ring binder that doesn't have crap poking out of it. Vladir, I don't have anything on my desk. Nothing. Maybe a list of, I have the, the jurors names, which I used to um, memorize, right? So I used to stand up in Vaudeer with nothing and I would talk to the Mr. Harris, Miss Washington, da-da-da. 
I stopped doing it so much because it is mentally taxing. It is difficult. When you're trying to memorize names you got 10 minutes ago while the judge is yapping at you and then you're, I've done it because my mentor did it. And by the way, every case I did it, the jurors commented after like, how the hell are you doing this? I'm like, luck. But then generally Wadir is about listening. So what you want to do is you want to encourage people to talk to you. And many times if you've got a jerk, that's good because you can love that jerk. You can thank them for telling you about how horrible plaintiff's law is and how frivolous lawsuits are ruining our country. But understand that if you're rude back to that person, jurors are going to be less likely to, who feel like it, to talk to you about it. So many times when you ask for brutal honesty, when the brutal honesty is, I hate your ass, you need to say, thank you. That's exactly what I'm talking about. This is the kind of information that we need. Do you understand that if I didn't know that you hated me until deliberations, that would probably be an unfair trial. Does anybody else hate my ass? Okay, but you gotta listen. And last thing I'll say is, example, if, you, if your heartbeat is going too fast and you're not thinking, I've had, I may have mentioned this before, wrongful death case, picking a jury. I said, has anybody had a traumatic death in their family? This woman tells me about her father who was killed in an auto accident. She breaks down crying, sobbing, talking. I'm like, are you going to be okay? Would you think? I said, you know what? I don't think you're the right person for this jury because of your fence lawyer gets up. Has anybody had a death in the family? They raise their hand. Go, yeah, what is it? Well, my father died. Oh, how did he die? Ask every question she had just sobbingly told us about. One, the king, the jury hated this dude, but he wasn't a bad guy. He was just concentrating on the wit, on his questions and writing down whatever, not listening. Stop taking notes. Just look at people and listen to them. You get a sense. If they've been a jerk all their life, they're not going to be preconditioned to become a great person and vice versa. Last thing about Wadir, the worst parts of your case, you need to get out in Wadir because you need to know what people think about it. So you have at least six opportunities to kick them off and or protect more to do cause. If you got drugs and you got sex and you got alcohol and you got, you know, bad stuff, you need to talk about that in Wadir. You do not want to find out that they hate drug users in deliberations. Okay, next, let's move on. Sorry, I'm talking so much about I'm going so slow. So let's talk about opening statements. So you pick a jury. The six pack means you got 12 in the box. And usually there's six more, 18 people that you voir dire. More than 18, you can imagine when you say, does anybody think frivolous lawsuits, too many frivolous lawsuits? If you only got 18 and six people raise their hand, great. Sometimes you got to voir dire everybody in the room. 60 people and one question has like 30 people. It's tough. So you need to know the ground rules. 95% of the time, it's a six pack. You got 18 people that you're asking questions. 
It used to be judges would give you 15 minutes to talk to 18 people. They've loosened that because the law has changed and they're like, this just is not fair, right? You can't talk to 18 people in 15 minutes. So you do your best as long as you are moving and you're not like stumbling over your questions. Most judges will give you at least now, I think about an hour or so. Depending on who you are, you really don't want to take a lot longer than that. Jurors, I mean, jurors get bored, right? Both sides, right after your questions, the judge says, do you pass for cause? Which means, has there any been any questions answered that tells you that these people are not fair for this type of case that you just, and you don't have to use a peremptory. If there are cause challenges, like somebody goes, I too many frivolous lawsuits and I could never vote for a plaintiff ever. Then before you start using your challenges, the judge takes the lawyers aside and says, they're supposed to go to the defendant first and say, do you have any, any challenges for cause? Yes, your honor. Juror number four said there's too many frivolous lawsuits they could never vote for X, Y. I believe that that shows they're biased and whatever, okay? They kick them off for cause or they don't, and then you use your peremptories. You got six for the 12, and then one for every alternate, okay? Last thing as an aside, the biggest thing when you get somebody for cause, you're asking questions, and they said how much they hate you, how much they hate the planet, how much they can't be fair. Usually the recuperation questions by the defense or the judges, are you, can you be fair? Can you listen to the law as I give it to you? So knowing that when you get a cause challenge that's clear, you need to ask those questions. You told me that you hate plaintiffs and you could never vote for a plaintiff. And that's really the case, even though you're a fair person, even though you will follow the law, you still can't vote for a plaintiff, right? Correct. Now you've eliminated that recuperation because many times you lose a cause challenge when the judge goes, well, he said he could be fair and follow the law. So you want to anticipate that. I know there's a, there's, look, there's a reason why nobody can try a case in 10 minutes or less. There's a lot of shit here, but a lot of it's in here. Okay. Now let's get the opening statement. So opening statement, again, depending on if you have got an agreement to use a PowerPoint, to use exhibits, a lot of times if you haven't agreed, if you don't get the agreement by the defense, it's you don't have any evidence, you don't have an ability to use any demonstrative evidence. Okay. Opening statement is I know they say it's a roadmap, but what you need to do is not flower it too much. What I believe, and I put it in here, is that there's a formula for a basic PI case. And I think is very good. If the judge will allow you to talk about burden of proof, you do it as well. But basically, I you always thank the jury. Always. Appreciate it. You give the jury a brief overview of the case, kind of what the general case is about. You talk, if you can, about burden of proof. So the jury now understands what's coming. Then... I talk about the facts more specifically and specifically about who the plaintiffs are. Then I tell the jury who they're going to hear from. I give them a number at the end. I'm going to be asking you for X. Right? 
And many times in my mini opening, if I can get away with it, I give them that number in my mini opening as well. And then sit down. The general rules are, if you're not sure you can prove it, don't tell the jury you're going to prove it. Use the word you may hear from so-and-so. You don't have for sure a witness is coming in. You say, we may hear from a witness who's going to say whatever. But understand, if you say something for sure, that will be printed out. And in closing, the defense will say, he promised you this would happen, and it did not happen. In fact, let me show you what was said exactly. All you got to do is say may, not you will, if you're not sure. Believe me, I, I, this is advice from the lashes on my back, okay? I have been through this in every way you could imagine. All right. So um, if you go on to Alder Talk Live and you see the opening statements and the voir dire that I did against Mike Chumba, you'll see we do all this stuff that I'm talking about. You'll see exactly what we did, all right? And believe me, the opening outline is rudimentary. Uh, there's a lot of stuff, but if you just get that across, um, and I'm going to remind myself to tell you the last, right at the end of this, a great story, which will be great denouement to this little other time. Okay, so now you call your first witness. I have 90% of the time at least called in a PI case, auto accident case, the defendant as my first witness. Okay, and the reason for that is many fold. One, I want the jury to know I'm not afraid of the defendant, right? First of all, we're going right at it, right? Secondly, I want, the I want to tie the defendant down, especially if I know that he's going to be impeached by other witnesses. So I want to not only tie him down so that I have a transcript of them saying, many times I'll have a board or butcher paper and I'll write the answer up there depending on your judge, if they like. So that two days later, when the witness says, well, the light was red, and I go, well, let's go back. The, the defendant said it was green. Is that true? And it gives you a, a place to go. It gives you drama. But it also reminds the jury. Because remember, jurors are good people. They're smart people. But they haven't heard your case every day for three years like you have. They don't remember who Harris versus Washington is. They got no clue. So everything you do in the trial has to be a reminder. So when you're asking questions, Mr. Defendant, when you were driving southbound on Olympic in January of, 20, of 2019, then later on, you're like, so we've established that on Olympic southbound on January, whatever, there was a, the jurors are like, it puts it into context. You cannot mention it one time at the beginning of trial and expect these people to remember it two days later. You just can't do it. So I use a board where I write up important stuff because like I said, in other cases like in depot, when you write it on the board, it becomes the, the truth. And it's also a prop, which gives you comfort. Right? You ever tried to talk in the middle of a group of people with nothing in your hand? You're like, Ugh! but you, you get a book or something, you feel more comfortable. Jurors like that, you will like it. Okay, so you go through the defendant. Time down. Then, depending on your witness order, 
always with the idea of foundation that I need to have proven stuff to the jury that allows them to now look at the rest of the evidence. So usually you don't do damages early in your case. You got a liability. Okay. In our case, it was an admitted liability case with a disputing causation. So we had an accident recon and we talked about the accident recon, whatever. Okay. Then you go to your time when you rest. And then when you're done with your witnesses, you say plaintiff rest. Then the defendant starts their witnesses. Usually uh, in a more complicated case, they will make a motion for a non-suit. In a PIK auto accident, it's not that much. But in other cases, they're like, Your Honor, we have a motion subject to our motion. And then they go and they say, if you assume everything the plaintiff is right, they still lose. And sometimes it's on certain causes of action. Again, on a regular PI case, it's not that big of a deal. But employment, products, there's some real discussions. Okay. Now the defendant takes over. And they do their case in chief. And now you're the one cross-examining. When they rest, they say we rest. And then they give the plaintiff an opportunity for rebuttal witnesses. Only thing I'll say about rebuttal is rebuttal is true rebuttal. They do not let your witnesses come and give opinions. You don't get the chance in rebuttal to call another expert to say, you know, I heard what the other person said, and that's a bunch of crap. Rebuttal is factual rebuttal. It is the plaintiff coming back and explaining what the cross was. You do not get to call more opinion witnesses in your rebuttal. So you got to think about that. And um, impeachment has to really be true impeachment. I mean, most judges, you know, if, if the defense, well, you know, it's, that's, that's too, that's, that's down the road. We'll talk about that at another time. Okay, so you rest. Now, the last thing you have is closing argument. By that time, usually while you're doing your evidence, the judge is asking the lawyers to agree on the jury instructions. There is now Cassie, most of y'all don't know what Badgie was. Badgie was the, the jury instructions before Cassie. Everybody knows Cassie. Cassie is pre-printed instructions on causes of action and elements and on every kind of claim you could imagine. There are the numbers for the personal injury. There's, you know, everything. There's preliminary jury instructions that apply to all cases. You know, you're... You're a witness, you're a juror in this case, and witnesses talk, and you can use these things to evaluate witnesses, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's jury instructions that apply to your particular type of case. They give you the elements and what's required and who has to prove it. Then there are jury instructions on the types of damages. And in PI cases, there are instructions on economic damages and non-economic damages. If you have a life expectancy need that someone's going to be hurt over time, there's a life expectancy instruction. There's a burden of proof instruction. And then there's the ending instructions. Now, usually in a PI case, this is about, I don't know, 30 instructions. And they have to be read to the jury. And it is the most boring thing you will ever do in your life. And it takes, 
I don't know, about an hour. And you are you want to kill yourself. But the judge has to do it. Some judges do it before closing arguments, and some judges do it after. Some pre-instruct, and some instruct after closing. Different strokes for different folks. It's only really, it's not, first of all, jurors don't really listen to the jury instructions, right? So now in your, in your closing argument now, um, <clears throat> people are like, okay, now I need to be Barack. Right, I need to be at mm -mm. closing argument. By that time, you probably will have seen reactions from the jurors that you can tell some of them are your warriors and some hate your guts. Hopefully, you got more warriors than haters, right? But I believe closing argument is not the time to quote, quote you know, Socrates. Oh, it can help. But you are instructing the warriors when they go back in the room to deliberate how to rule in your favor and to address the negative questions that the haters are going to ask and have an answer for them. So what I do in closing argument is I say the burden of proof. You'll see it if you go on Alder Talk. And, the, and I instruct that the evidence is weighed plaintiff versus defendant. And you put all the evidence and you weigh it. And usually there's a couple of jury instructions that talk about how to put weight on the evidence. Like if you don't believe one person, one thing that they say, you don't have to put weight on the other. If they call weak evidence and they could have called stronger evidence, right? If they say, trust me, but they had a video and they didn't use it, then you can not put as much weight on that evidence. And then I go through the evidence talking to my lawyers and saying, you see, but you gotta address what's coming from the other side. Because when they go into deliberation and your lawyer goes, aha, you see there was a delta V of five and the defense says, yeah, but delta Vs of seven are required. You need to say, well, you know, the defense says delta V of seven is required. And they say that always, but what did you hear? That witness who said it works for the defendant all the time. That witness gets $5 million a year. We showed an article because that's what your lawyer is going to say in deliberation to convince the, what is this? This is like the election, right? Some people are going to vote for Biden. Some people want to be a Trump. The winner is going to be those people in the middle. And you need to give your lawyers the arguments to fight against it. Okay? If nothing else, that is in a very effective closing argument. Then the defense goes. And then you have a rebuttal. The only thing I'll say about this is that if you do not give a number in your main closing argument, rebuttal is technically only to address what the defendants say in their closing. And I've seen sophisticated defense lawyers, if the plaintiff doesn't give any numbers, the defense lawyer doesn't talk about numbers at all. And the plaintiff goes, oh, I need to talk about it in rebuttal. And they've objected and been precluded because they didn't talk because the defense didn't talk about it. Okay. So just be careful. All right. Last thing. And then I'll, and we got a couple more minutes. So then the instructions have happened or not. They then happen. The jury goes back to deliberate. Usually the lawyers agree on the exhibits being correct. It goes back in and you wait. And then there's the dreaded buzzers, right? The buzzer, 
And I even forgot, I, I, whenever I hear a buzzer, my heart goes out of my chest. One is like, let's take a break. Two is a question. And three is we have a verdict, right? So you're like, eh, you're like, eh, you're like oh shit. And then they got a verdict, right? Usually you got to stay 15 minutes away from the verdict. And then they come out, four person has the, the official form, they give it to the clerk, they read it, they look, you're trying to read their faces, they give it to the judge, the judge looks at it, wait, how long is the judge looking at it? Man, it could be a big number if he's looking, then he gives it to the clerk and then they read it and there you burn. Then last thing they say is, you want to poll the jury. Usually you do, and basically every question is then asked in open court, did you vote so they can determine in a civil case that nine out of 12 voted that way. And once in a blue moon, you realize that it hadn't been nine, three, and they go back and deliberate to get to nine, three. And there's your verdict. And there you go, you just try the case. Easy, right? Okay. So imagine now that with Sanchez, we have added 10 more witnesses that you got to work into your schedule to do the foundation. So it's really important for Sanchez to know that six, seven, eight months before to try to stip as many times as you can. So you don't have to call those witnesses at trial and you agree. We're going to end with this. And I want to tell you the story. Okay. Everybody here can do it. Everybody gets what they want. What you really want, the universe will make sure you get. And it's usually right outside our comfort zone, right? It took me about seven jury trials before I actually started to breathe, okay? Before I could kind of, now I actually relax when I'm in front of a jury, in front of a group of people. But it took a little while. So everybody has their different thing. And heartbeat control, I have learned, is the most important thing. And I leave you with this true story. And I am not bullshitting. This is a true story. And it will tell you that everyone can survive trial. So you can kind of tell I like to help people. And I've put out for 25 years that I will help anybody. And I've helped a number of young lawyers, including this one lawyer who had their, his, his or her first jury trial. His first jury trial. And I said, he was so stressed out. I said, dude, why don't you call me the night before every day of trial? And we'll go through the whole day for the next day. And I'll help you, right? So he's going to pick a jury on the, tomorrow. And he calls me that night. And I'm like telling him about, here's some of the general questions. But this is what you do, whatever. Calls me that night. I'm like, how'd it go? He goes, oh, man, it was great. I did great. You know, I, was, I think it's going really well. What do you got tomorrow? I got I got an um, opening statement. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, JFK. And I'm like, no, dude, look, tell me about your case. Well, this happened and this happened. And I'm like, tell the jury that. Tell them what you're going to prove. Tell them how you do it. Then sit down. Calls me that night. Dude, how'd it go? He goes, didn't go too well. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you know, I, I, I got up. In uh, in opening, and I'm talking about the accident and my client who got hurt. And I look over my client sitting there, and she's going, "Ah!" ah. And I'm like, I'm like looking at the jury, and they're looking at her, and she's like making noise, and she's like, "Ah!" ah. And I'm like trying to figure out what's going on, and uh, and then I passed out. True story. True story. 
put the phone on mute, crying. I was like, I not feel your pain, brother. Right? So picked it up. And what have I said to you guys? It's about consistent behavior over time. There are ups and there's downs. And the really important is when you come down, how you react, whatever. I said, but look, jurors decide who wins or loses. And then they make up the facts that fit that thing. So get back up, show how you care, show it. First jury trial got a $75,000 verdict. And afterwards, the jurors were like, we thought you cared so much about this plaintiff. You passed out in court. Now, imagine, was that your first thought? No, you're like, oh, you, you lost, man. You doesn't. Sometimes you don't know. And if you can show that you care, that you're prepared, that you know just generally what you're doing, many times when you stumble, when you pass out, when you fumble, when you get really mad because this person is lying and you know it, and you think that you screwed up, many times you're telegraphing to the jury, I love my client. These are great people. I hate the fact that this injustice is happening. Don't make it up. Don't manufacture it. But what I've done today is I think I've given you some of the basics of a general trial. If you want now with that, at some point, if you have time, go look at the mock jury trial, the remote jury trial, with the idea of looking in there if some of this stuff that I've said. And I know we went a few minutes over time. I'm going to stop and just say, does anybody have any last questions? Appreciate y'all being here on Friday again. Anything anybody want to say? Welcome to the trial law. <laughs> okay, guys. Thank you. I appreciate everybody checking in. Love y'all. We'll see you uh, next Friday, okay? Thanks, Mike. All right. Thanks, Mike. Bye. Bye.